Howdy, howdy. Welcome, everyone, to episode 136 of the No Normal Show, brought to you by Revive. This is where we'll leave all things status quo, traditional, old school, and boring in the dust and celebrate the new, the powerful, the innovative, the future, all related to how brands can lead the way in health. I'm your co-host, Chris Bevelo, Chief Brand Officer at Revive, joined as always by co-host Stephanie Weirwell, SVP of Integrated Marketing at Revive. Welcome, Stephanie. Hello. Glad to have you back. Also glad to have our co-host and show's producer, Chase Kleckner, Senior Marketing Manager at Revive. Hello again, Chase. Hi, Chris. Hi, Stephanie. Hi, Chase. Hi, Chase. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So it's middle of January. Uh, We've got a lot to cover. We're going to start with some book conversations. So first of all, it's very exciting This morning, as of this recording, the Joe Public 2030 book is now available for sale, at least on Amazon. So you can go to Amazon and search Joe Public 2030, and you'll be able to buy it. It's not exactly available this second, so consider it a pre-order. When I ordered a few, it said that they would be coming between the 15th and the 29th of January. So second half of January, but that's just part of the the publishing process. This is the initial launch pre-order stage, but you can put your order in and your books will come at some point. That's, that's a new deal. So we're very excited about that. As you know, we'll be talking a ton about the contents of the book and the predictions therein over the course of this year. In fact, next week, we're going to do a whole extravaganza on the book now that it's available. Uh, So that's exciting, but we have to talk about books because Stephanie, while I was laying on my couch, watching TikTok, watching some ESPN over the holidays, I saw you post on LinkedIn that in 2021, you finished 95 books. And I struggled to sit up straight because you know i'm too old to just bolt upright can't do that takes me a second to like to get there and i and i said to my wife i'm like that's like i'm pretty good at math that's like two a week on average that's crazy i also know stephanie stephanie's not lying about that how is that even possible so how is that talk to us about your your 95 books in a year what drove that how did you even pull that off what's your secret <laughs> well, it was, I, I surprised myself. I didn't go in, I actually went in with a much lower goal and I just had so much fun and was surprised at how quickly things blew by. So then I was like, a hundred, I can hit a hundred. Well, I didn't hit a hundred. So anyway, no need to stress out about that. But yes, first, my first little secret is I keep a list and here's my list to show that I'm not lying. And um, She's showing a handwritten list that's yes. by numbered book titles for those and of I you all of you can't them see. off yes i check them okay. off after i complete them so that progress motivation is really satisfying of the check mark um my other secret is i keep multiple formats at all times print audio and digital and the reason for that is you can basically be reading 24 7 if that's your jam so multitasking <laughs> like literally okay so like walking showering hair appointments driving cleaning all of that 
audio. If I'm at a hair appointment, I was like reading, you know, a book on my phone. If I'm showering, sometimes I'd bring my phone in there and listen to Audible. So you'd be surprised how much time you can rack up. Um, and then my other little secret and tip is, um, well, nonfiction and fiction at the same time, the variety matters. And I speed read. And I learned that from Bill Gates. Ah. Like, it's all about the gist, not the details. There's no book report. So I listen on 1.5 speed for Audible. Um, and it takes a little bit of like warming up to get to that. Um, so those are my, what is that, five, five tips. But I won't be doing this this year. It's, it got stressful, um, but it was really fun. It's fun to see what you can do. So, Okay, so speed reading, I've tried that on podcasts and it bothers the hell out of me. But even at like 1.25. Chase, do you do that? Do you have any like speed it up? There's there's certain people I can listen to at like 1.25 or 1.5, especially podcasts, because I feel like podcasts, there's a lot of just in between chatter and you catch most of it. Like this. But with, <laughs> yeah, yeah, like this. Yeah, put it 1.5. Uh, but with books, I I I don't know. I'm I'm a detailed person, so I like listening yeah. to all of it. Um, and when I get to the end of the chapter, I'm like, oh man, I wish I I almost like want to re-listen to it. So I I typically stay at one, maybe one point two five, but one point five is a little is a little fast for me. Well, that that helps explain a little bit and the speed reading, which I. I've never even attempted that, but I, so I, that's one of my personal goals is to read more um, nonfiction books. So I'm always reading a fiction book. Always, always, always. It helps me fall asleep. Uh, I super enjoy it. So I'm always reading novels, but I'm trying to, I got away from business books for a while because I just had no time. Then I went to audio because um, that's where I could find time for it, but I just don't enjoy the audio as much because I want to I want to go back and reread things. I want to bookmark things. I want to highlight things. And while you can do all those, I don't know if you can really do those well on audio. You can do them when you're reading on a Kindle, but audio, I feel like it goes in one ear literally and out the other <laughs> and I don't retain as much. So I have adopted my wife's strategy for, for reading, which I used to not buy a new book until I could read it. So I'm like, why would I buy a book when I know oh. I, I got to get through this one? And her strategy is, I like that book. I'm going to buy it. So she's got like a stack over here behind me. And now I have a stack because I'm like, I like that book. I'm going to buy it. And I have a stack. It's a little intimidating now, though, because I'm like, oh, gosh, noise, which we've talked about how many times this podcast at the bottom of the stack. The stack includes Prediction Machines, which is about AI. Somebody told me to read Upstream by Dan Heath. Anti-Fragile by Talib, who's the guy from the Black Swan. Brene Brown. Um, that's a lot of books. Plus, I'm reading a book on um, Stoicism and The Algebra of Happiness from Scott Galloway, which are upstairs. Well, sounds like you have a fun, a fun time coming up. <laughs> I just don't I just don't know. Like, I think what I'm going to do is just say I'm going to dedicate an additional 30 minutes a day to reading. Yeah. And then see if I can pull that off. It sounds like that should be doable. And then last night I had 30 minutes before my wife could come down and we were going to make dinner. And I'm like, oh, I could read right now. I'm like, nope. <laughs> ESPN's on, Sports Center's <laughs> on. I need to relax. That was a hard day. So anyway, Chase, yeah. we, we haven't got your book out. Are you a book reader? Like I go th I'm, I'm like an up and down book reader. Right now I'm in the Harry Potter series. So that's nice. what I'm super excited about fiction, which I haven't read a lot lately. Um, I, um, this is my more personal, but I'm reading a, a book about 
adoptive families that have mixed races within their families. Uh, sure. So that's been really interesting to me because I have a black daughter. Um, and so it's just personal experiences of specifically black people that will, are grown up in white families and the takeaways and lessons. And so learning a lot oh, about that's that. That's great. Yeah. Are you reading Harry Potter to your kids? I'm not. You should. No. I did yeah. that with my, I read all of the Harry Potter's with my oldest. And then I went through again and read them all to my two youngest together, but we didn't get through the last book because the movies at that point had come out and stuff. Yeah. It's amazing to read it to your kids. So I would recommend that you get the enjoyment of it still. Um, They actually have like picture books of the entire book now, which is really cool. So yeah, that's a good idea. All right. So moving on, uh, this is going to be a potpourri episode. We're gonna hit. We're gonna hit a charcuterie of topics. Uh, my favorite part of the charcuterie is the salami, the hard salami. Super good. Uh, <laughs> Stephanie, why don't you why don't you why don't you start with some cheddar cheese and talk about twenty three and Me? I have no idea what the relationship <laughs> is there, but I'm just sticking with charcuterie. Imaging. I like it. That's my favorite part of the board. Um, so 23 and Me uh, has an announcement that they began a clinical trial for their first drug candidate, which is really, really interesting given where 23 and Me has been. And in fact, um, this came out of a lot of the um, research that they've done through saliva tests and DNA testing. So um, of course, that's an interesting development because 23 and Me is, is not a drug company, but um, at Health two years ago, three years ago, 2019, uh, they took the main stage and and discussed how the future of 23andMe was going to be all about uh, predictions and actually helping to cure and solve actual health issues, moving away from just the information that we've been used to. And I remember sitting in that room and thinking, that's awesome. What's that going to look like? And when's it going to launch? And then years went by and I was like, that never happened. But here we are. So um, it was pretty cool. I think one interesting tidbit is um, the the clinical, I guess, numerical name of the drug is 23Me006110. So how's that for branding? <laughs> <laughs> um, and I should note, it's for it's a it's a cancer drug. It's a targeted cancer drug. Mm. Um, so pretty interesting where that space is headed. Yeah, there's yeah, so much opportunity. The, sorry, Chris. No, you go ahead. Especially with their acquisition of of Lemonade Health too, which is um, telemedicine and prescription drug delivery. So they're definitely moving into that space more and more. Yeah, There's just so much opportunity with advancements in um, cancer research and can- personalized medicine and and all of that. So um, we cover that in the book. Actually, we'll talk about it next week. It also has a downside in many cases of being insanely expensive um which is which is a shame but also the way it goes so we'll talk more about that later uh just you know important to touch again on where we're at in the world you know we we've got a few stories that came through this week about hospitals closing down elective surgeries so many of you are probably experiencing that uh that started in certain you know metropolitan areas in december uh, carries through as Omicron just burns across the landscape. Uh, in fact, we're already hearing today, I heard from a couple of resources that it may be peaking or has already peaked in those areas. So New York City, as an example, uh, where we see things like hospitalization starting to flatten 
which is great. But as we know, starts there and it's got the rest of the country to go. So even some of the optimistic uh, kind of projections are that this this may be burning through by, you know, sometime early to mid February, which would be fantastic. Uh, those of you that know or that were planning to attend, we had to we had to close down our Joe Public Retreat and our summit in early February because what we were hearing from many of the experts at your organizations told us, yeah, we might be past the peak by then, but we're still going to be dealing with, you know, insane levels of cases. Even though hospitalizations aren't as bad, there's still plenty of them. Uh, and so, you know, the most optimistic view of all this is that this is the final straw. This burns through. And, you know, I've heard a couple people say we will look back potentially at Omicron as the as the final kind of gasp of COVID-19 as a significant social issue and disease. Not that it will go away, but there are others that say in May we could just have a, you know, whatever's next in the alphabet that could also come through. So cross our fingers and we just know how difficult it is for you all to do your job when you need to, when your organizations need the financial um, resources that come with everything you do to stay in operation. You got to shut them down or shut some of them down. So hopefully everybody's doing okay with that. Uh, if you're spending money on advertising, odds are good is from one of three companies or it's with one of three companies, right, Chase? That's the next headline. Yeah, the next headline is basically by the by 2025, 50% of the advertising market will be spent with three companies. Which is Alphabet. Can we guess Barton. who they are? Oh, okay. Well, I gave you one. <laughs> <laughs> who did you say? Uh, I'm not saying. <laughs> no. Oh, oh. I, I mean, we know. Go yeah. ahead. Go ahead. Okay. We it's Alphabet, uh, Meta, and Amazon are the top three. So we will be spending all 50% of our advertising budget or marketing. All, and... a- all advertising, not just digital. Yes. Like yep. if you took all the ad spend and put it in a pot, half of it is going to those three. Yeah, globally. It's overwhelming. It it I'm having thoughts of historically it brings me back almost to the 50s, right? I'm I'm rewatching Mad Men, but thinking about how back then there were so few choices and then the explosion of choices happened and now we're back to like less choices in a sense. More choices, but three big ones that have taken over because of their extreme targeting and mass audience reach. Kind of wild. Yeah, and the and the the influence there too is is you can't really even tell from that statistic because, you know, if you're a small business, it's more than fifty percent, right? You're not you're not running a bunch of TV spots if you're a small business, um, you know. So so most of your spend is probably digital of nature, probably SEM is probably display that type of thing, uh, which means you're you're working with you're working with Meta, which I can't stand Facebook. <laughs> the name um alphabet also known as google that's where you're spending all your money like it, it's it, you know we we at some future show we'll talk about uh retail media networks which are starting to blossom um been around for a couple of years but really starting to take off uh and really it's intriguing to think about those from a healthcare perspective uh and how those might be leveraged or how there could be healthcare versions of those so we'll talk more about that maybe that will put a little dent in these in these networks and these platforms. All right, the last one we want to talk about is in terms of a headline before we get to our, our deeper issue we want to dive into a little bit is JP Morgan. Their annual conference happened this week. 
as we're recording this, they ended up going virtual, uh, given the, the situation we've talked about already. Just there's a lot of stuff that happens at that conference. Uh, I think our takeaway from it was there wasn't a ton that was, you know, super noteworthy or super new or cool. I'm sure there was some things, but our cursory glance at it. One thing I just wanted to point out, because I think uh, I always love to, to, to find examples of this because we've been talking about it forever. Advocate Aurora, which is a huge system based out of Chicago, uh, moving, you know, they've, during the conference, really made a, a scene about moving to become a health-related company. The CEO, Jim Skogsberg, saying during the presentation on Monday, uh, our investments this year are moving us to become more involved in healthcare and beyond just hospitals and doctors. That includes... Uh, taking a 20% stake in a telenutrition business called Food Smart and the acquisition of a home care and wellness company called Senior Helpers. They also bought a stake in the digital analytics platform, X-Health, X-Health. It's health with an X instead of an H. So X-Health. I'm going to go Zelf maybe, like xylophone, right? Xylophone spelled with an X. Okay. So I, I just love this because we have been talking about this for a decade now. We've been talking about the opportunity for health systems to move beyond having a value proposition that's just about care delivery to something much bigger, something much broader, becoming a health brand because they have so much expertise and they are already playing a role to such a you know large degree with so many people that they could help them manage their entire kind of spectrum of health, not just when they need a doctor or when they need a hospital. So it's not pervasive in the industry. I think it's a very fair statement. So we're, you know, this is just more evidence that 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 was a good idea, that we weren't smoking crack when we put that out there and we have continued to talk about it. But it just also points to it takes a long time in this industry <laughs> to move anything. Yeah. What I what I think is interesting about that, their 20% stake in telenutrition business, Food Smart. So, Food Smart has a really interesting business model where you basically sign up to get a nutritionist and then they'll give you personalized meal plans and guidance along the way, kind of like a health coaching type thing. Um, there are not a lot of large, scalable organizations that do that. Now, there's a, the health coaching industry, which is slightly different than this, but the health coaching industry tends to be a lot of individual you know, folks, it's really hard to find one. And what I think is great about that is in all of our research that we do, especially for health systems around how consumers think about health and healthcare is wellness. Duh. You know, they think about what am, what am I eating? How am I exercising? And they need a partner in that. And health systems typically have a business for that, but it's usually siloed. It's usually not promoted. It's usually not highly accessible. It's not convenient. So I love this move and I, bias. I'm a certified health coach, so I believe strongly in this stuff. But um, <clears throat> I think this move is really, really fascinating um, in, in, uh, in this direction. Yeah. And it's just, what, you know, what we've said forever is, A, it'll help, you, it'll help you stand out from the other health systems in terms of a brand. B, it allows you to move upstream in somebody's life so that you're part of their lives in a broader way, in a more frequent way than just the, the infrequent times when they have to see a doctor or a hospital and see, obviously, if you can 
play a role and have a relationship with them at a higher level, they're much more likely to come to you, you know, when they need those, those, um, interventions of care. So it's just such a smart thing, but because there's people don't see a lot of money in it, it seems kind of like incremental and that, you know, just for whatever reason, it hasn't gone as fast as it should have, I guess is the best, best way to put it. So I, we celebrate Advocate Aurora for moving down that path. Yes. And that's where the new entrants are headed to the primary care, new yeah. entrants all have those kinds of, it's built into, it's not just, you get a primary care, you know, physician, you also get access to all of these other services built into your subscription fee, which health systems don't work that way. Um, how often does your primary care physician, you know, send you to a nutritionist? Uh, very rarely. Yeah. This is the funnel wars. This is a, it's, a, it's a salvo in the funnel wars. We'll talk more about that next week. All right. So final topic we wanted to dive into is telehealth. Uh, boy, we, you know, telehealth has been beaten to death over the last few years as a topic, as a, as something to focus on, but that, you know, that just shows that it's very important. What's interesting is, you know, something that we saw and, you know, others have seen obviously a report that came out, uh, I don't know, it was a week ago, a couple of weeks ago, modern healthcare reported on it that a, you know, it's basically a research done by a company called Trillion Health analytics firm that showed telehealth utilization declined on average by 40%, 40.3% a month last year compared with 2020. So when you hear that, a lot of things go through my mind. Uh, the first, the first impression I get of that, the first thought, the first vibe is negative. And what I mean by that is like, oh, come on, we're not gonna, we're not gonna fall back to where we were before. All right, we're not gonna just relax. We're not gonna, um, you know. But when you when you kind of dig deeper into it and the nuance in it, it's maybe not as bad as it sounds. So I don't know, Stephanie and Chase, when you guys hear that, uh, and we knew that the you know the explosion in the in the spring of 2020 because there was no choice. As soon as there was a choice to go back to the doctor, that it would come back down. Uh, that seems like a higher number, higher drop, I should say, uh, than, than I would have liked or expected. But what, what's your guys's, Stephanie, we'll throw it to you first. What's your take when you think about the kind of um, retraction of virtual health, whether it's from that report or otherwise? I, I think it's interesting and I think it's disappointing. <laughs> I'm with you there. And and it's hard it's hard to know is this because of le- lack of consumer demand or is this because of supply for right? Like is this because health systems have moved back to in person or is it because consumers have stopped using telehealth? And I don't know the answer to that. What I do think is interesting and maybe this goes in a tangent, but there's some data that shows that no shows were significantly higher with telehealth appointments than with in-person, which is surprising, but there may be some interesting reasons to that and the psychology of it. Um, so that could be causing um, some of that shift and even frustration from providers. Um, but I don't know, Chase, do you have a better theory? Well, I have a question for you all. When you do a virtual care, is it a are you making an appointment for it or is it something that's almost like an urgent care matter that needs to happen right away? Does that make sense? Like between those two? Yeah, I could, I mean, my personal experience is before COVID I had done no virtual care that wasn't 
urgent in nature. And by urgent, I mean yeah. um, somebody in the family's got strep throat. Now I feel like I got strep throat. I just need to talk to somebody who's going to shoot me an antibiotic or, you know, I need a, something where I know I can get the care I need, which is usually a prescription quickly without having to go somewhere. Yeah. But obviously the pandemic changed all that. And now, so like with my provider, uh, I'm, I'm typically, and I make a lot of appointments. I got, you know, a few specialists, I got a primary care doctor. So I'm making a, you know, on average, let's say one or two appointments a month, maybe one a month. And, and basically when I go online, cause now I do it always online, trying to call in is like trying to call the cable company five years ago. You just never get anybody <laughs> because these poor people are swamped. So you go online and you can do online scheduling where I, with my provider and it will offer me, would you like to do a video visit? And so I have a choice of picking that. Now, what's interesting is I had a appointment scheduled for like a check-in on with a sleep doctor because I, you know, I have, I have sleep apnea, so I have to check in and I did it virtually. And then morning of the morning of the appointment, they canceled it and they said, Hey, not sure why this is virtual. Um, so we're canceling it, call us back and reschedule it. And I'm like, so it sounds like you're saying it can't be virtual yet. I was given that choice. And also why can't it be virtual? Because I'm just talking to the doctor. They're not like putting me through things. So that's my experience. Stephanie, I don't know about you. Well, I just, your, your experience is reminding me that back in 2020, March of 2020, when the world shut down, remember healthcare marketers were all having this moment, like this is when telehealth is going to boom. And it did, but a lot of what we were talking about back then was this is the moment when telehealth is going to become an integral part of the overall patient experience in a very strategic way. And that didn't happen. Instead, what happened is it continued to be tacked on. It continued to be in lieu of. It continued to be a mess from a scheduling standpoint and not well communicated to patients in terms of, is this a real appointment? Is this a consultation? Are they going to solve my problem? When do I call teletalk? So I guess my long-winded diatribe here is saying this was not a moment when telehealth became part of the larger strategy. And that's what's disappointing. Yeah. To me. I mean that, so I remember having conversations with clients in the fall of 2020 saying, look, it's already started to go back down. Projections are, it's going to go down. Don't let it go down. This is your opportunity. And when we would tell people you should be thinking about this strategically in a way that if you built a health system from scratch today, you would make everything virtual first. The in-person would be the secondary option. The option when it's the only choice like surgery or a doctor does need to see you in person, right? That will always be there, but the default should be virtual. Imagine that. And you know, for most, most health systems, that's like a mind blower. There's just no way. So to Stephanie's point, I think like they, my provider figured out how to make sure that virtual visits are comprehensive and can be offered in almost all cases. That doesn't mean like in some, like my primary care doc gets it, but the sleep center didn't. They didn't they didn't work yeah. closely enough with the people in the sleep center where they're like we're making sure it's okay to offer a virtual visit here. Um, and also I feel like I've had to advocate for virtual visits often where it'll be a checkup for somebody and they'll say we well, you know you got to come in and I'm like do I and and I've, I can tell you that I've had people on the phone go, well, I guess not. I guess we could just do this first. I'm like, yeah, I just need to talk to the doctor. I don't need to drive 20 minutes to go in there. So um, 
I think the the overarching thought I have on this is, oh no, to to Stephanie's point, I'm just so disappointed because I feel like, first of all, forty percent drop sounds like a lot, but when you went from zero to hundred thousand, which is not a kind of you know outlying experience for health systems, larger ones in the, in the spring of 2020, you went from zero or ten a month or a hundred a month to a hundred thousand visits a month. Now you're, you know, 40% drop puts you back to 60,000. Well, 60,000 is still exponentially more than that zero or hundred you had before. So that's still very significant, but, but boy, I just fear that, that people are relaxing. I fear that systems are like, we, you know, COVID hasn't helped. I mean, ironically, (laughs) even though COVID should support the continued growth of virtual care. I think because we figured out how to deal with COVID and stay open, despite the headline we gave 20 minutes ago. Uh, that has, you know, caused a lot of systems to have to prioritize other things, understandably. So I don't know. I just think, I think you're missing a, Chase, what was the, the statistic you showed to, or you, you found that was the survey about why people use virtual care? Do you want to cite the number one reason? Yeah, the number one reason uh, that people use virtual care in general was the uh, was the fear of contracting a disease. So you would think that the rise of, of these surgeries was actually increased the utilization of telehealth. So, but that that was surprising for me. That it was it wasn't convenient. It wasn't you know like I mean that's the number one reason I use it. But it's is the fear of contracting a disease. So and when was that survey recent? I mean, this is where yeah, we this give survey the... was about a month ago. Okay. It was by eMarketer. I'm I'm having a light bulb here. I'm thinking about other industries who have gone virtual and what it took. So what I mean is, remember when people used to say no one will ever buy clothes online because they miss trying them on and you'll have all these returns. Macy's said that about Amazon and then look what happened. (laughs) Furniture. Now we see furniture bought online, but it took a while. It took years. It took years for consumers to get comfortable. And I wonder, and this is my thought here, (laughs) theory is maybe consumers are not there quite yet, but they absolutely will get there just like other industries have. And so there's still question marks in people's heads about can a doctor solve my issue through telehealth? Like what can they do there versus in person? And what's the difference and how do I handle this and the technological issues, which lead to the no-shows, but we will get there. So how are health systems preparing for that moment, the Amazon moment, or are they going to be Macy's? Yeah. Well, and, and I think the in the study, it's a 95% of the respondents have actually taken a telehealth visit within the last year. Like before 2020, I mean, I can't even imagine what that number yeah. was. Like it, it had to be a lot lower. So I definitely think that's showing that this is a growing trend. I think my fear is is that hospitals will to go back to their kind of like relatively slow measured pace when it comes to new projects. Um, when you see payers, on the other hand, have completely committed to this endeavor in that they are making health plan options solely virtual based first, you know, virtual first health insurance plan. So I think they are going to be heavily investing into it. They have a, a stake in the game, I guess if you want to call it that way. And they're, they're pushing towards that versus maybe health systems are 
are backing down or, or slowing down their efforts towards digital yeah. health. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's my fear is that people are going to take that survey result and go, well, the number one reason people like it is because it helps them avoid, you know, catching disease, which is clearly COVID driven, which once COVID goes away, then there goes the need for virtual. And I'm just telling you, I know I'm not a voice of one. I do not want to go back to the way it was. I want to use virtual everywhere I can. It's just for all the reasons it seems so obvious to me. So I know there, you know, it skews older as you get older. That's, that's, it's less comfortable for you. There's a technology gap. You've always gone to the doctor. Um, I'm Gen X. I feel like anybody younger than me is going to default the other way just by, I know, I know it's really scary when you use generational stereotypes like that, but, but really don't assume I want to go back and see you in person and, you know, drive 20 minutes and then read golf digest and, and all that. <laughs> I definitely don't want to do that. So. Yeah. And you see advocate Aurora, which we talked about earlier, investing, investing in services that are virtual. And then you see, I'll tie back 23 and me at home testing, moving into, you know, true drug delivery. So the stars are aligning. And if the at-home testing industry increases and we have other things we can do at home, wearables and data, if home is the hub, wow, look at that ecosystem coming to the home. Yeah. I, it, it's, I just, if you are slowing down, this is the message for health system marketers. If you are slowing down in any way, you've got to figure out a way to, to stop that and turn it around. It, it still needs to be a primary focus for you. Again, we'll talk about the funnel wars, but geez, Louise, it's, they're coming. They're coming for you and you better be ready. So don't, don't just think it's COVID. Okay. I think we should wrap there. How's that? Let's do it. Let's wrap. Let's wrap. I think that was, that was enough preaching for one day, There's right? A lot of preaching. <laughs> and we're probably preaching to the choir too. Sorry, folks. If you're, you're like, we know, we know it's not us. It's our whatever. We're trying. We're trying. <laughs> well, we're here to support you. So if you are already in that boat, we're just here to support you. All right. So Stephanie and Chase, as always, thanks so much for sharing your thoughts and being here with us. Thank you. Yes, here's to here's to being more like Stephanie in 2022, reading 95 books. 95. Oh gosh. <laughs> well, this year I'm gonna hit. I'm gonna shoot for 20. Nice. 20 is good. I don't even know how many I did. Yeah. I'm gonna say 10. It's probably more than that. You've got to make a list. I like the list idea yeah, a lot. I do. I'm too. so driven by lists that when I write a list for the weekend, check in the box, and then I do something that wasn't on the list, I'll write it on the list and cross it off. <laughs> yeah, Dopamine rush. Is. I'm telling you. so nice. All right. For those of you out there, make sure you add us to your list. Huh? Get it? And re- <laughs> re- let us know. If you if there's anything you want us to, to, to cover, please let us know. Send us an email at nonormal at reviveagency.com. We love getting feedback from you all. Even if it's just feedback, let us know. Uh, make sure you share this with your friends, your colleagues, give us a review and rating on iTunes. That's super helpful and appreciated. And as always, don't be satisfied with the normal push the known normal. We will see you next week. Thanks again for joining. Three, two, one.